This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Dr. David Mayer, Executive Director of the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety and the Patient Safety Movement Foundation board member, Patient Safety in the Context of COVID-19. Dr. Mayer, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, David. It's great to be on your show today. Dr. Mayer's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, patient safety or preventable patient harm remains a significant threat to patients, particularly seniors, now 20 years past the publication of the landmark IOM report to Air is Human, Building a Safer Health System. As I noted in my intro in my December 2019 Paul Ebner interview in 2016, Johns Hopkins concluded in a study, medical errors account for upwards of 250,000 deaths per year or are the third leading cause of U.S. deaths, although I will note this, that study is disputed. The country's failure to contain COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, particularly in light of successfully containing SARS-CoV-1, along with MERS and H1N1, has assuredly increased instances of patient harm and excess deaths. Among other explanations per a September Harvard Business Review study, the U.S. still has not solved the PPE shortage, and in numerous instances it has worsened. Beyond resultant harm to patients, inadequate PPE or uh, personal protective equipment has caused, as of early June, over 600 clinician deaths in the U.S. Per September Kellogg, found, uh, excuse me, Kaiser Family Foundation study, long-term care settings are to be blunt killing fields, or as of mid-August, they accounted for more than 70,000 deaths or 45% of all COVID-19 deaths. Worse still, as research published this month in Nature demonstrated, when unaccounted or indirect deaths, for example, excess diabetes and heart disease deaths, caused in part by reductions in ED visits, the number of COVID-19-related deaths in the U.S. is significantly higher. For the CDC, the number of excess U.S. deaths due to COVID-19 since February 1st number 208,000. With me again to discuss patient safety during the ongoing pandemic is again Dr. David Mayer. So uh, Dr. Mayer, with that as a somewhat lengthy background, let's start with uh, my question. Can you briefly describe the work of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation? I'd be glad to, David. I thought that was a great summation that you uh, started us off with. The Patient Safety Movement Foundation is a global organization. We are in 48 countries and over 4,800 hospitals, helping them with tools and applications that have been proven to reduce preventable harm to patients and to caregivers. The organization was founded by Joe Chiani back in 2012, and, and I've served on the board since its inception, and, and I was um, proud to step up in a volunteer role about two years ago when Joe wanted to step back for some other work he was doing and asked me if I would assume the CEO position, and I volunteer my time with that organization, which really is a, a volunteer organization. There's over 500 patients and caregivers and family members 
who devote their time to our programs, to our educational webinars, and, and things we provide, including what we call actionable patient safety solutions to hospitals and to patients. Great. Thank you. Let me, uh, this interview is uh, timely to the extent that the World Health Organization's World Patient Safety Day was uh, 11 days ago, September 17th, and you were involved in some uh, U.S.-related events. Uh, could you tell me um, what those were? Yeah, I'd be glad to. The uh, World Health Organization uh, used the slogan this year about it's about caregiver or workforce safety as well as patient safety. If we're not protecting our caregivers at the front line, it's difficult for us to then push the agenda and really maintain safety and quality for our patients. So the Patient Safety Movement Foundation aligned with that theme, and, and we did a number of events during the week, but it culminated in a walk from Freedom Plaza to the steps to the park right outside the Capitol building where 25 of us using social distancing, most were family members who had lost loved ones due to preventable medical harm. We uh, planted or put down 2,000 orange flags, orange being the color of World Patient Safety Day, in the, um, in the park right in front of the Capitol building. And the visual was quite amazing. Each flag was to symbolize 100 of the patients and caregivers who've lost their life due to preventable medical harm. And then that evening we put on a virtual uh, event, a webinar. It went from uh, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern time. It had celebrities, it had congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle. It had patient safety experts, it had families and patients sharing their preventable harm stories. And it also offered solutions, um, mainly towards how patients and families can truly increase the probability of them having safe, high-quality care, um, especially in the midst now of the pandemic, as you've brought up. Okay, thank you again. I, I will just quickly, I did learn actually just today, you're involved in a walk across the country. Uh, <laughs> that's about... Yes. Um, back in uh, early February, when I saw a lot of things that were heading our way with this pandemic, and look, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist by training, but haven't been in the OR for a number of years, about eight, 10 years. My, my work has been predominantly in the uh, administrative role of quality and safety. And I felt helpless. I, I felt I needed to do something to support my friends and colleagues at the front line. I, I saw, as did others, what they were going to be going through with this pandemic. And I happened to watch Forrest Gump one night. I pulled the movie out, as many of us were doing when we were kind of locked down. And uh, I saw that he was running across the country when he got felt helpless and got frustrated. And I said, I can't run anymore. I'm 67, but I could walk. And so I told my wife, I am going to walk across the country virtually from San Diego to Jacksonville, Florida, to raise awareness about these issues of quality and safety for our caregivers as well as our patients. Um, she promptly looked at me and started laughing, thought I was crazy, which there are days in the morning I think I am, but I've now logged in almost 1,500 miles over the last 230 days. Every day I walk at least six to sometimes 17 miles. 
And I do it every day in memory of a caregiver or a patient that's lost their life due to preventable medical harm. And uh, I hope to arrive in Jacksonville, Florida by next late February, accomplishing all close to 2,600 miles if I had biked that route literally across the United States from San Diego to Jacksonville, Florida. Well, I wish you the best uh, with that. I'd like to talk about it more, but let's get into uh, some of the details here. Uh, per my intro, uh, the pandemic certainly has exacerbated the patient safety problem. Uh, and my question is, would it be fair to say, and this is analogous to the Gates Foundation goalkeeper report of two weeks ago, I'm sure you read about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Would it be fair to say that the patient safe, that patient safety progress over the past 20 years has largely been uh, compromised, if not erased, over the past seven months because of the pandemic and the results we've seen? Uh, I agree with that report. I, I think while we were starting to make some progress and there were areas where we saw improvement, be it um, related to pay for performance measures put in place by CMS, uh, whether it was just hospital inquired affections and good research, or whether it was some technologies that have shown to reduce um, you know, mortality, things like early warning sepsis systems have helped us improve and and start treatments earlier. But I really believe that the pandemic has caused us to lose focus on those things uh, and has also exposed a number of the gaps in safety in our health system that many of us knew were present, but now have just escalated with all the issues and the work that our frontline uh, staff are having to do and focus in on. Okay. Thank you again. Let's, let's leave aside uh, the effects of the pandemic, pronounced as they are, um, both, of course, morbidity, mortality, and, of course, patient harm. What other factors do you see in, in our health care and how we deliver health care that has contributed to, in um, two ways to phrase this, either limit progress in improving patient safety or, or left us with this persistent problem where oftentimes, in fact, my sense on this, over 20 years, oftentimes it seems like it's one step forward and two steps back. But what do you think are other variables that explain this persistent problem? Well, I have used that same saying about one step forward, two steps back, especially when it comes to uh, the introduction of the electronic health record and all the issues that that is caused from a human factors aspect. But I think a couple things have really contributed even before the pandemic. One is the incentives aren't aligned. I mean, we're still lying to produce volume, not quantity, not quality, I should say. Yeah. And so the alignment is to do more cases versus to do cases safer. And until we figure out a better way to align those incentives to quality and safety outcomes versus always financial productivity, um, we'll never see the change we need to. And I think the other thing, too, is related to transparency. There, there's a culture of, you know, not wanting to admit you made a mistake. And there's a number of reasons for that. We live in a, a very litigious um, times and, and medical malpractice is often, you know, overriding many of the things that hospitals and caregivers have to fear or encounter if they were to admit to make a mistake. And if we don't have transparency, if we don't share about what happened in a way that we feel protected, uh, we don't learn. 
And if we don't learn, we make the same mistakes over and over. And I think for many years, wrong-sided surgeries and procedures were great examples of that. There were so many of them that people just didn't talk about. And it wasn't until a few people started talking about them and reporting them and sharing their own experience, we started learning about things that could help, like universal protocol and implementing a timeout with a very standard checklist just to verify and validate that what we're doing on this patient is correct. There are so many times the consent is wrong or the schedule uh, in the operating room is wrong and people make mistakes and they start prepping the wrong leg before we started doing these times out, timeouts and, and we've caught so many of those. So I think we need to be more transparent. We need to create a culture that we don't blame people for a mistake. I mean, the Institute of Medicine report is to err as human. I, I count my mistakes every day. I probably make between 10 and 15 a day in normal activities. And we can't expect our caregivers to be perfect every day. So we've got to put in systems and processes and resources that allow us to trap those errors the same way aviation and nuclear energy and other high-risk industries have done in their resilient science or sciences approach and model. Okay, so in part, as you note, it's it's we're still largely in this quantity over quality uh, dynamic. Uh, you did mention or hint at, and that's the issue of value. We don't spend enough time, even under these alternative payment models, in measuring for value or outcomes achieved relative to spending. Um, mm-hmm. So we're weak on that front. Of course, value would have to mean uh, reduced harm in part. And then uh, you mentioned checklists. Let's let's let me go to that. This is the the famous example here is out of Hopkins. Uh, this is the checklist for uh, to reduce central line infections. Um, but the issue is it's not it's not the checklist per se that uh, causes success or reductions in infections. It's, it's the adoption or the use or the legitimate use of the checklist. What's your overall assessment of the effectiveness with the use of checklists? You know, you, you said it exactly right. You know, a checklist by itself, and we could put checklists everywhere and, and we'd go crazy. But it's the idea of understanding and having a culture that breeds safety first, that says we must prioritize safety and the safe care of this patient. First, the, the program you talked about, the Keystone Project, developed by Peter Pronovos and Chris Goschel, the work they did at Michigan and started at Hopkins uh, in the ICU, led to tremendous changes. When we all learned that there was a bundle, that there were six to seven things that if we did them routinely with the second person at the bedside to make sure that we weren't doing something wrong or weren't contaminated without knowing it, took central line infections pretty much down to zero in most hospitals across the country. We saw the same thing with ventilator-associated pneumonias. There there were so many tools and bundles and things that could be applied every day, but because of either the culture or the urgency to do more versus do better, it creates an environment that we skip some of these bundles, so we don't follow them all the time, and then somebody does get hurt, And we feel sorry for that, but we could trace it back in our event reviews to we cut corners. We did workarounds away from something we knew has been proven to reduce risk and save lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'd I'd be remiss. So 
we, we do know, uh, and this is my question concerning uh, sepsis. This was uh, not that we didn't know this, but earlier this year, Lance had studied a published uh, published a study rather that noted uh, sepsis accounts for one in five deaths globally, and is the most common cause of deaths in U.S. hospitals. So, if, if this probably in and of itself is probably is is the leading uh, uh, patient safety issue. And my question is. What progress are we making in addressing this? And just as a related aside, um, I actually uh, had a procedure a few years ago. It led to paralytic ileus uh, from from the anesthesia, uh, led to an infection. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, I was I was treated effectively because you know mm-hmm. these these are very dangerous uh, can be very dangerous uh, situations or experiences. However, I will say I did have an extensive conversation both with the hospital uh, chief medical officer and the chief of the anesthesiology department, and I'll just reference the latter conversation. I did speak with the gentleman for quite some time, and the conversation persisted because I was waiting for him to say or even to suggest that maybe they could have done, not necessarily admit a mistake, but suggest that they could have done things differently, and I could never get him there. In fact, at the end of the conversation, more or less, he said, I do the same thing over again. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, this was a preventable error. It led to a potentially fatal infection. And after 20, 30 minutes of discussion, I've not moved him at all. So, uh, again, my personal experience aside, uh, where are we on on patient harm uh, as a result of Sepsis, and of course, you do know in SNFs, uh, the DHHS IOG has pushed out reports repeatedly that avoidable infections number over 1 million in skilled nursing facilities amongst Medicare patients every year. Well, first, your story resonates with me so much because a lot of my work through the years has been around open and honest communication with apology when necessary or when, you know, appropriate. Um, We did work back at the University of Illinois um, in the 2005 to 2006 range where we just decided to flip the coin. Instead Instead of trying to defend the indefensible, we had seen our medical malpractice payments skyrocket to the point where it wasn't fiscally sound to almost run a hospital. We decided to use Rick Boothman's model out of Michigan and flip that and say, you know what? When we make a mistake, we're going to do a great event review. We're going to explain everything and uh, to the patient, answer all those questions and apologize when appropriate. And we found out the amount of claims and lawsuits against us went down tremendously. We did early resolution and it was fantastic. And that work through the Obama administration and funding in CMS through ARC led to the development of the AHRQ Candor Toolkit, which many hospitals now are using across the country. And it's proving that when you follow that toolkit and implement a Candor program, you decrease the amount of bad events or unintended but preventable harm in your hospitals. And you also save a significant amount of money because if you have less bad care, you're paying out less for bad care and you're settling cases 
in three to six months versus four to five years and the amount of costs of depositions and everything. So I think people still need to learn that sometimes being open and honest with an apology and a willingness to learn is the best way of doing things. In regards to sepsis, that's right up there, as you point out, um, with diagnostic errors. And you mentioned Paul earlier in the work that his organization is leading to try to improve diagnostic improvements. But sepsis, yeah, so many patients and, and family members that I've met through the years have lost loved ones due to um, delayed detections of infections, sending people home when they should have been admitted, even when the blood work indicated they should have been admitted. And then they come back 24 to 40 out, 48 hours later and they're in septic shock and, and we lost our window of opportunity. We have seen advancements and improvements um, in some of the early warning signs, but we still have a tremendous amount of work to go. And it's another example of we know what helps reduce delayed detection of sepsis. Why aren't we using those tools? Why aren't we drawing that blood work earlier when the vital signs or the indicators hit the um, the point where it says it's time to start treatment versus delaying it 24 hour, hours and arguing with the vital signs. So um, we still have a lot of work to do in sepsis, but I know there are many patient advocates who are working with the CDC, with AHRQ and CMS and other agencies to, uh, to really address this. Okay, thank you. Since this is a policy uh, podcast, of course, I'd be remiss also if I didn't ask you're on the Hill speaking to, and you pick your uh, pick your favorite health committee on the Senate or House side, finance, health, ways and means, or ENC, and or maybe you're giving testimony and you're being asked. Um, we're interested in getting back to this issue uh, as federal policymakers. Obviously, we manage the Medicare program. Uh, what what would your be What would your advice be? to federal policymakers on ways in which we can uh, do a better job or at least um, address more in, a, as you said, just said, a time-efficient way, uh, 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 reductions in medical harm? Well, the first thing I would, uh, would love to discuss, discuss is to get a group of stakeholders together to look at the creation of a national patient safety agency or authority. This would be a model similar to what the National Transportation Safety Board is looking at different issues, near misses, catastrophes within the transportation business, be it airplanes, be it trains, whatever. The learnings that come from that, the sharing of knowledge, the reporting in a uh, non sort of punitive uh, model to share near misses from, so we could learn from them. I'd love to see the creation of a national transportation, uh, a national patient safety agency. The model has shown promise in two states in the country, and I think um, we need to look at and continue to move that at the national level. The second gets to my point about aligning incentives. Pay for performance moved us. It didn't move us far enough, and I think we need to have a heightened, uh, increased um, model that aligns incentives to quality and safety outcomes in a, a stronger way. 
And the third is through the adoption of more transparency around outcomes and the CANDOR program I talked about. The, the federal government has been great in supporting that, taking it to this step. We need to continue to expand um, transparency around outcomes and learnings that come from that and create an environment where we get out of blaming people for making mistakes and we look at the systems and processes and bring human factors engineers more into the mix. Um, that's how other high-risk industries have been successful. And we haven't done those three things yet in uh, our healthcare industry. There was discussion years ago about a, a, an institute at NIH on patient safety. Whatever happened to that? Again, a lot of talk, but never got traction. Um, we'd love to see something like that. And, and again, it, it would start with just the ability to get stakeholders who have interests in quality and safety in healthcare together and say, how would this agency look? What would it be? charged to do, what responsibilities and accountability would it have. Um, there's different ideas around it, and I've talked to many across the country, and every idea is, is similar but has some uniqueness to it, and I think that's what we need to do. We need to get people in a room that can implement change and make this happen. Thank you. There is a, uh, under Medicare, there's an incentive uh, or, or uh, there's carrot and stick as it relates to hospital acquired infections. This is uh, a pay for performance program that CMS runs mm -hmm. for hospitals. What's your general assessment? That program has been criticized in part because in some ways, it, not intended, of course, or unintended, may be creating a reverse Robin Hood effect in that uh, hospitals with more challenging, let's just say, uh, patient populations uh, are faring worse and that should be unsurprising. However, they're the ones being financially penalized. So your general assessment of the hospital HAI problem, programmer, excuse me? Well, I think it was a step in the right direction. Um, like so many programs, it's a start, and you need to continue to evaluate it. Your point about critical access hospitals and hospitals that are treating different patient populations, the risk model adjustments, have been the focus of much of the controversy and um, the pushback, and, and I think rightfully so. Uh, we should not be publish, punishing some of these smaller um, critical access hospitals who don't have the resources and treat a patient population that the acuity might be different than some other hospitals. So those things need to continue to be improved and looked at. The other issue is a lot of times these quality metrics are two, two and a half years old. And so do you really know how a hospital is doing today versus what they were doing two, three years ago? Um, they could be quite different. Some could have improved tremendously. Some could have fallen back. But we're providing the incentives on work that was done. And to the public, that's important because they want more up-to-date outcomes so they could make, you know, really good choices, or at least educated choices, on where they want to go for a knee arthroscopy versus going for a crowded endarctectomy. It, it could be totally different in the same hospital in regards to outcomes and the quality of care of those two procedures. You know, per your mention of uh, risk adjustment, and that's always the nut in a lot of this, the crux of the matter, uh, ASPE's just out, I don't know if you saw the report, 
this much discussed last several years, to what extent should you factor in social determinants in risk scoring? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually somewhat surprisingly came out with a decision that, at least for now, uh, those should not be factored in. Let me, my last question, and I, and I would want to work this in, and we have a minute, and that is uh, you discussed the Patient Safety Movement Foundation, but also you have an ED position with MedStar Institute. Could you give me uh, some of the leading uh, innovations or efforts uh, at the MedStar Institute? And that would be helpful to learn. Oh, well, well, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I've been with MedStar for 10 years now, and, and they are a tremendous health system. Uh, in regards to our uh, Institute for Quality and Safety, we've gotten a number of recent grants, uh, over $12 million worth, around diagnostic errors under the leadership of Chris Goschel, who I mentioned was part of that original Keystone project with Peter Pronovost. Chris is an outstanding researcher, and, and so she is leading a lot of great work around diagnostic errors. We continue to implement and help hospitals around the CANDOR program and uh, how to bring, um, you know, that program with early resolution into a hospital and health system environment. And on the education side, uh, two of our leading programs is we offer a master's uh, in quality and safety leadership, executive master's through Georgetown. And some of the best people in the country are teaching that program. It's a 14-month program that gets you that master's degree in quality and safety leadership. We have certificate programs and people just want to do three courses versus the seven in the master's. And we also run what's been referred to as the Telluride Roundtable um, for quality and safety. It's programs focused on educating the young. And every year up till this last year with the pandemic, over 15 years, we've brought in around 200 leading residents, medical students, nursing students, and try to really um, take their passion in quality and safety and, and put them through four and a half days of workshops with major quality and safety leaders across the country. And it's, it's an amazing experience. And what these kids end up doing when they leave residency or the students who go into residency, they're leading programs and efforts that are saving lives. So we've put over 1,500 Telluride alums through our programs over the last 15 summers. Great. Thank you for that. And we're at about our time, uh, David. So I do appreciate this overview. Um, Very helpful. I I do hope we can make some progress in at least mitigating the damage, the ongoing damage uh, and uh, relative to the pandemic and how it's affecting certainly adversely as a related effect to um, patient safety. Again, not only patients, but of course, uh, the harm done to clinicians as well. So with that, David, I thank you again. And thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.